Good morning. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm picking up a little bit of the cold that everyone else seems to have. So if my voice sounds a little grovelly, a little more baritone today, uh, just bear with me. No, I'm not cutting a jazz album. Um, but that's how I feel today with that kind of saucy, sultry, low, rumbly voice today. So if that's offensive to you, I apologize. Um, we're just going to keep going. Uh, good morning. Um, we've been studying Luke's gospel together, and we'll continue that. So if you have a Bible, uh, grab it, um, pull it out, and then we have some folks from our strike team. If you'd like to read along, just slip your hand up, and they can put a Bible in your hands. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. And as you find your way there, let me ask you a question. Can you think of a time when you've gone back home, maybe after a time away, maybe to a family reunion or maybe a class reunion? How was that for you? Think about it. How did people respond when you told them maybe what you did for a living or here's your family and showed them some pictures or maybe how much you had changed? And while I think people attempt to be genuinely interested in how life has changed, I think most people, if they're honest and if we're honest, struggle to see people not for who they really are, but how they were, right? If you were that guy in high school, people have a tough time not always seeing you as that guy. And now that you're not that guy, people just don't know what to do with you. In the passage we're reading today, Jesus returns to the place where he grew up. He goes back home to Nazareth. And the reality is people there, the people who he knows, don't know what to do with him either. Last week we read about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And by the Spirit of God, he overcomes that temptation. He was tempted like we were, yet was without sin. So we talked about how Jesus becomes our our refuge So today we're picking up in verse 14. Uh, We're going to read through verse 30. It'll be on the screen as well. I'll invite you to read along, starting Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were 
many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord for us today. May it accomplish its purpose in us. Now, like the people worshiping in the synagogue, or maybe like those at the class reunion, we often have a tough time seeing something or someone that is at odds with our expectations. We, like them, might find it hard to see Jesus for who he is, rather than who we want him to be. We'd rather he conform to our expectations, to our preferences, to to our priorities. But Jesus doesn't ask, who do you want me to be? He comes in and says, this is who I am, and this is why I've come. Jesus confronts our expectations and our preferences in, in these ways, and we see it in this passage. He reveals who he is. He reveals why he's come. And then we see something kind of big. He rebukes those who are unwilling to receive him. I think that's what we see in this passage. Two revelations of who Jesus is and one stunning rebuke. So let's dig into the text. Let's look at the first part. Jesus reveals who he is. Now we just read that he spent 40 days in the wilderness and he makes his way back towards his hometown of Nazareth. And Luke tells us that already people are talking about the things they're hearing. That there's a report now a reputation that is preceding Jesus, by the time he gets back home, people have already heard some things that he said. They've already heard about some of the things that he's done. He's been hanging out and healing sick people. He's proclaiming a message of, of the gospel, of the coming kingdom, of repentance. And so news of him has already trickled back home. And so Luke just jumps right in here. He doesn't tell us about all that he's all that Jesus has said and done to this point, he jumps to his his return home to Nazareth and tells us, by the way, news of Jesus has already started to spread. And note in verse 14, it says, Jesus returned with the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Just a reminder here that Jesus, remember, tired, hungry, Tempted in the wilderness. Returns back to his home in the power of the Spirit. Don't miss this side note. That the Spirit of God that anointed Jesus in his baptism is the Spirit of God that sustained him in the wilderness is the same Spirit that empowers him to move from a time of fasting and weakness right into the grind of full-time ministry and preaching and healing the sick pouring himself out. Now, that's all Luke says about it, but this is a significant thing that I don't want us to forget that we'll come back to this over and over again as we see Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke is the consistent, indwelling power of the Spirit of God. Don't forget that. Okay, hold on to that. So Jesus is is doing stuff, right? He's preaching. People are taking note. And verse 15 says he is being glorified by all. People are praising God, and they are in awe of the things they are hearing and seeing from Jesus. And so verse 16, he returns to Nazareth where he grew up. Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. They actually left Nazareth and went to Bethlehem to be registered. We read about that as we read about the birth of Christ. 
Uh, the other gospel accounts tell us that for a season they fled to Egypt because Herod was going to threaten to kill all the firstborn in that region. And then they return home to Nazareth, where apparently Jesus spent most of his time as a boy and then as a young man. And then it says he went to the synagogue, which is the place of Jewish worship in the town, as was his custom. This would have been a regular thing for Jesus. Week in and week out, regular worship. This was Jesus' home church. And so it would have been natural for a rabbi to join a local worship gathering. Someone who the community knew and maybe respected and looked up to. Uh, to, to stand and to read a text when speaking as they gathered. Part of synagogue worship is that they would read from the Torah, from the law, and then they would likely read from the prophets. And then upon the reading of the prophets, uh, someone, uh, the person who was the reading, would then sit down in a chair and then take a few moments to expound upon the text, kind of giving somewhat of a, of a sermon. And so Luke tells us Jesus stands up to read, and the attendant hands him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Luke says, Jesus found the place where it was written. Now, here's an interesting little side note. Um, Isaiah is a, a pretty significant text. It's, it's long. There's a lot of it. And we don't know. It's likely it was a single scroll. We don't hear him saying like he handed him a portion. He handed him the entire scroll of Isaiah. And in fact, in 1946, there were some shepherds um, who found in a cave system near Qumran what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found uh, many, many fully intact scrolls um, that had been preserved carefully in, in jars in this cave. And among them was a single intact scroll of the prophet Isaiah as an example of maybe this type of scroll that Jesus would have been handed, um, the, the scroll from Isaiah that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran Caves um, was written across 17 sheets of parchment. It was 10 to 10 and a half inches wide. Um, not consistent, not machine cut, right? Um, so but anywhere between 10 and, and 10 and a half inches wide and 24 feet long when rolled out. Um, that's a little bit further than from this pillar to that pillar. So you can imagine the size of that scroll that he's being handed. And Luke tells us he finds the place where it's written. Now, we don't know if there would have been a daily reading or a regular uh, liturgical, like last week we read Isaiah 60, today we read Isaiah 61. We don't actually know that from what we know of synagogue worship at the time. All we know is that Jesus finds this passage. And the passage that he reads, we have it listed as Isaiah 61, and that is a messianic prophecy. It's a, it's a passage in the, the prophet Isaiah that speaks about the coming Christ, the coming Savior of God's people. And everyone who was listening would have known, hey, what he's reading from Isaiah is about the Messiah. And so Jesus finds this passage, and it's as if he's saying, when he starts to expound upon it, this is happening Right here, right now. Now, can you imagine for a second the commotion that would follow with such a statement? Did he just say what I think he said? Is this guy for real? Apparently, Jesus was compelling and at least somewhat convincing because it says people spoke well of him. 
And they marveled, not just at what he was saying, but the, the way it was communicated. He is unequivocally claiming to be the promised one, the Messiah. Him saying, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, is him putting a stamp on his identity as the Christ, as the Messiah. And everyone in the room would have known it. Jesus was revealing who he was. He was coming to restore the kingdom of God on earth. Second, his reading of this passage also reveals what he's about. Why has Jesus come? Our theme for this long study in Luke, we pulled from Luke chapter 19, where Jesus says this about his purpose. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That is his self-proclaimed mission. Why are you here? I've come to seek and save the lost. And here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says roughly the same thing. He's he's setting forth that same mission. Um, Let's uh, read this. Because it, it, it confronts people's expectations. Why does the Messiah come? To overthrow Roman oppression? To create a new nation state? To go to war against the foreign nations as in the days of David? Does he come to make Israel great again? Too much? Right? No! He confronts their expectations of him and he says, No, no, I was sent. I was anointed by the Spirit of God to do this. And this is how Isaiah frames it. He says, Proclaim good news to the poor. This phrase, proclaim good news to the poor, uh, this good news is where we get the word evangelism from the Greek to the English. It's gospel. It's good news. And the good news is proclaimed to who? Well, Isaiah says he, he's come to proclaim good news to the, to the poor. And this has double meaning. It has double meaning all over the scriptures. Plainly, it means the poor, like those who have little. But it also means those who are poor in spirit. There's a humility and a brokenness when the scriptures speak of the poor. So it's not just those who are financially bankrupt, but those who are spiritually bankrupt and in need. The good news of a gracious Redeemer is only good news to those who actually know that they are in need. Jesus says, I've come with a message of hope for those who are in need. He also says to to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty means release or pardon. Who needs pardon? Well, the guilty one, right? The one who is locked in prison, the one who is guilty, is the one who needs forgiveness. Only the guilty need pardon, and Jesus comes to forgive the guilty. He says this, recovering of sight for the blind. The word for blind here can mean both unable to see physically and unable to understand. Later, when Jesus is confronting the religious leaders who get angrier and angrier with him as he goes about his ministry, he says, woe to you, you blind guides. Not that they couldn't physically see. It's that they did not understand what he was saying and who he was. And they were unwilling to see. They were spiritually blind. Jesus says, I've come to help those who are blind recover their sight. All of you who have been stumbling around in the dark, I have come to bring light. He continues, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. These words echo that phrase, liberty to the captives. Oppression here speaks of those who are under severe hardship, those who have been shattered and broken to pieces. Jesus is establishing and 
proclaiming a message of release and freedom. And then he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This phrase comes from Leviticus chapter 25, actually. The law given to the people of God proclaimed that every seven years, this would be a year of jubilee, a year of the Lord's favor. It was a season of restoration. Land that had been lost or sold would be returned to its owner. Debts that were outstanding would be uh, uh, forgiven. It was a national like Sabbath-type rest for God's people. It was meant to be a taste of what redemption was going to be like. So Jesus is reminding those listening that the coming Messiah, your Savior, coming to you is tangible proof that the Lord has not forgotten you. He's actually bringing you His favor. The kingdom of God is near. Your rest and your redemption is at hand. This is why Jesus was reading the prophet Isaiah to remind them, do you forget that this is what has been promised to you and here I am. Isaiah is announcing this is what the Messiah will look like. This is what the Messiah will be about. He's come to bring freedom to those who are enslaved, to bring sight to those who are blind. And at first, people are amazed at his words, or at least seemingly, they're at least cordial. But that changes pretty quick. And this is where it turns, and Jesus after revealing who he is and revealing what he's about, offers a strong rebuke, a critique, a criticism, a challenge to those who seem to be unwilling to hear what he's telling them. Look at verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Now, that might seem like an honest question. But if you look at it, they already know who he is. This is his hometown. So it doesn't seem to mean, hey, hey, don't we know this guy? It rather sounds like he can't be serious, right? We, we know him. He's nothing special. And Jesus seems to see right through their heart motives and calls them out. He rebukes them. Doubtless, you will quote quote to me the proverb, physician, heal thyself, would have been a common uh, proverb or phrase, truism, statement of the time. Jesus is exposing their desire for, prove yourself. Prove it. Prove it to us. We've heard about what you've been talking to others about. We've heard about the healing you've done in other towns. And yet we've known you your whole life. You've never said any of that here or done any of those things here. Until now. And now you make this bold proclamation. If if he's going to make such a claim, then we deserve to see it for ourselves. Prove it, Jesus. That's a little bit more of what, isn't this Joseph's son? Sounds like. And Jesus seems to have none of it. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That's his answer. And maybe you've experienced that. Have you you felt that? Maybe you're a different person than you were. By God's grace, you grow and you change and you go back home to family or old friends and they look at you sideways. 
They're skeptical, right? I know you. I've known you for a long time. You're the quiet one or the clown. Or you, you wouldn't do something like that. Or worse, so now you think you're better than me. Maybe you've experienced that same tension. And Jesus just goes on to highlight two stories in the life of Israel. One about a widow and one about a leper. Now, we don't have time to get into those stories in depth, but here's the snapshot. During the time when Elijah was prophet in Israel, you can read about it in 1 Kings 17, there was a terrible, terrible drought which led to famine, lots of hunger and death. It was just an awful season. And so there were many people in the northern kingdom of Israel and the surrounding countries that were affected by this drought, that were affected by famine. It doesn't, the, the famine doesn't just stop at national borders, right? The entire region was in trouble. And the Lord sends the prophet of Israel to Phoenicia, which is another nation to the north, to a Gentile widow. And God speaks to her and blesses her with a miraculous supply of oil and flour so that they can make bread. And on top of that, Elijah heals and brings the widow's son back to life. God speaks to and blesses a Gentile woman during a time when there was great tragedy even amongst Israel. After Elijah, there was a prophet named Elisha, different guys, uh, during this time, there were uh, during his time, there were many who were burdened with the trouble of leprosy. Which, when we read leprosy in the New Testament, um, or even in the Old Testament, it kind of it was a, a group category for many, many skin diseases. Uh, many of which kind of left you an outcast to society. And you can read about this section in Second Kings five. But the Lord sends a prophet of Israel. Not to someone in need in Israel, but to a commander in the Syrian army named Naaman. And Elisha proclaims the word of the Lord to Naaman, and Naaman is healed of his leprosy. The Lord showed mercy. And so Jesus is saying, during this time, there were many widows who were in need. There were many lepers in need of healing. And the Lord didn't send a prophet to any of them. Why? Because they did not want to hear what God was saying to them through the prophets. They had rejected the message that God has sent to Israel through his own prophets. And they're like, no, no. We don't want what you're selling. But the widow and the leper knew they were in need. Now, they didn't know how this need was going to get met necessarily, But God showed up. And in fact, both of their responses to the prophets was similar. The widow says, I know that you are a man of God. I see it. I've tasted it. And Naaman says, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. See, the hometown people of Nazareth were a snapshot, a sample of all of God's people in Israel who were blind to the truth that was staring him in the face. Their Messiah had come to them, and they did not recognize him. And in fact, they didn't want to see him. The Gospel of John opens with this cold and true reality. John 1, verse 11. 
he, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They refused to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And the other way we look at this question that they ask, isn't this Joseph's son? The reason we can look at it and say, I don't think that's just a a benign, simple question, is look at their response in verse 28. When they heard all these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Interesting choice of words, Luke. Wrath, anger, fury, rage. They went full pitchforks and torches. They did. Mob rule took over here. They were filled with wrath. They were so angry that how dare he call us out? How dare he point out what they all knew was God's judgment on Israel in not sending a prophet to them, but sending him to uh, foreigners, Gentiles. How dare he? In in fact, they, they drove him out of the synagogue as a mob and out to a place where they could push him off a cliff. That escalated fairly quickly, right? See, Jesus is drawing out their, pure mo- their, their true motives, exposing their bias, and rebuking them for rejecting him the same way that God's people had rejected the prophets before. It wasn't honest doubt. Hey, don't I know this guy? It was willful disbelief. There's no way that I can believe that he is who he's claiming to be right now. It's not that they couldn't hear what he was saying or what he was doing. It's that they covered their ears Uh, and covered their eyes and rejected what was plainly put right in front of them. Because Jesus did not come on their terms. And Jesus, without a single strand of sin or no unrighteousness at all, rebukes them and calls them out. There's not one ounce of unrighteous anger coming out of Jesus' mouth here. He just calls it like he sees it and draws out of them their true motives. So as I've read this this week, I thought, well, what's my response, right? What's my response? Sitting in the synagogue and, and listening to Jesus say, here's who I am and here's what I'm about. What, what's, what's my response? What's our response? Do I receive those things or do I reject them? In perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible, Jesus says in John chapter 3 that God showed his love for the world in this way. You know this one. That he gave his only son, that all who would believe in him, in Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life. There's a promise there. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Those sitting in the synagogue... We're standing here saying, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that's it. That's not what I expected. That's not on my terms. I don't want that. So as we come to the synagogue in Nazareth, as we listen to Jesus reveal who, we, who he is, we are invited to receive him. Not on our terms, but as he's revealed himself. He comes as Savior and Lord and King. He comes for the poor and the broken. And as, as those in bondage and, and for, for those who are blind. See, if, if we don't see ourselves as poor in spirit, 
in recognizing our need for salvation, in recognizing we are in bondage to sin, and only by Christ are we relieved of that bondage, if we don't know we are spiritually blind, we don't hear the gospel as good news. We don't need it. We're fine. So as we come and listen, as Jesus reveals who he is, do we see that? Are we reminded of the fact that he has brought us from death to life, that we were blind, but now we see? And as we listen to what Jesus says about what he's come to do, we're invited to join him because we were once blind, and now we see. And there are many around us who might be blind and in need of healing, might need uh, light for their eyes, comfort in their brokenness, freedom from their own chains. So we carry the message and ministry to any and all who will listen to the hope that we have in Christ. And so we go with Jesus to the poor and the marginalized. We don't turn away from the people and places that make us socially uncomfortable. Instead, following the lead of our Savior, we move toward people and into those places. Because the danger is we reject his words or worse, join the mob in cursing Jesus and pushing him away. See, we often fail to join him on this mission. Even if we believe who he said he is, we have issues with what he says he's come to do because we are now too good for that kind of mercy. Forgetting that we too were once blind and spiritually bankrupt and only by God's grace have we grown. Only by God's grace have we found life. So what's our response to Jesus right now? Here in the synagogue, Jesus is inviting us to see him for who he is and see his mission of the gospel of the kingdom, and to not parse it out, but to just receive it all. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are kind and merciful and patient with us. As we see over and over again in your word, uh, your people struggle to believe you, and you are long-suffering and offer mercy. And I pray you offer mercy to my slow-to-believe heart, And all of us, help us to see with with fresh eyes. Help us to remember the grace you've shown us. Help us to remember, to see the, the, the death that you've saved us from, the blindness that we once had that we no longer have. And that would stir in our hearts gratitude and thankfulness and worship. Father, forgive us for maybe even receiving who you are, but failing to join you in your purpose. Would you reignite our hearts with a love for the loss that you have? Because we recognize we were lost and have now been found. Would you encourage our hearts as we come to the communion table that we have a tangible expression of our worship in the bread and the cup as a proclamation of the love and mercy and justice of God meeting at the cross that we might have forgiveness and have life. That our condemnation now falls on him and his righteousness and mercy comes to us and we are encouraged and blessed. Help us now encourage our hearts to worship. 
In Jesus' name we pray.